Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I have some stuff in a blog that I've been writing in for almost three years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Today is Wednesday, September 15th. 2021. And we're continuing our analysis of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement case against North Carolina State that arose from the basketball-related quote-unquote scandals that resulted in criminal prosecutions in the Southern District of New York. And in the criminal case, North Carolina State and other schools who were allegedly duped by impermissible payments between shoe company representatives, Adidas representatives, and all the schools were Adidas schools, and assistant coaches or go-betweens to try to encourage athletes to either attend a particular institution or sign with a particular agent. All of those transactions were viewed as acts of fraud perpetrated on the universities, including NC State. So in the criminal cases, North Carolina State is the victim. <laughs> they are treated as the victim. They cooperate with the NCAA. They cooperate with the prosecution. They cooperate with the court. They cooperate with everybody. Extraordinary cooperation. And then on the backside of all that cooperation, after the criminal cases were brought to a conclusion, at least through to verdict, and the defendants either pled guilty or were convicted of wire fraud charges and the charges relating to NC State, it was a very paltry, flimsy conspiracy to commit wire fraud. But on the backside of that, the NCAA completely flips the script and all of a sudden NC State and these other institutions, which were described as quote unquote victim universities by the judge in the criminal cases, they cease to be victim universities and NC State is now the bad actor in college sports. And the NCAA just took all of the evidence that was adduced in the criminal cases and all this cooperation that NC State and other universities who were implicated in the criminal cases provided to the NCAA, and they're using it against them. And they are coming in with this my way or the highway, self-righteous indignation at the corruption of the collegiate model and the integrity of college sports and all the usual themes that the NCAA uses to try to enhance its public image. And that's exactly what's going on here. And I began talking about this NC State case really, I guess, seven episodes ago, going back to, let's see, episode 53, the curse of NCAA versus Tarkanian, and up through to episode 59. This is episode 60. So if you want to understand the backdrop and the context for this analysis, check out those episodes. It's really an interesting story. And the reason it's important is that the environment that the NCAA finds itself in the fall of 2021 is fundamentally different than the circumstances that existed when it was on its high horse in late 2019 and early 2020. And it is bringing down the hammer 
on NC State, and it is using tools that were recommended by the Commission on College Basketball for purposes that the commission did not intend. And some of these tools allow the NCAA to just cherry pick evidence from the criminal case. NC State wasn't portrayed as the perpetrator. It was portrayed as the victim. The uh, prosecution didn't come after Mark Gottfried or Orlando Early or anybody at NC State in the uh, scenario that were related to NC State. Those people weren't defendants, they weren't called as witnesses, and now all of those people are the subject of the NCAA's prosecution. And this is a prosecution, make no mistake about it. This is not a cooperative investigation. This is high stakes prosecutorial action by the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And when you strip away all the NCAA's propaganda about cooperation and everybody singing the same kumbaya song, trying to come to a consensual understanding of what happened here so we can move forward and do better. No, this process has all of the features of a prosecutorial action. And that's exactly how the NCAA enforcement staff views it. It's exactly how the NCAA views it. And I think now that the NCAA is fighting for its relevance, and that's been admitted by Bob Gates, the new public face of the NCAA, in connection with this constitutional committee that's going to completely change college sports and it's going to align authorities and responsibilities, all, all this stuff. And what I'm doing with this NC State case is to bring us to what's happening right now. And it's really important because whatever decision comes out of this NCAA investigation, and this is going to come from the independent resolution hearing panel, it's going to have to be very mindful and very carefully tailored to the circumstances that exist today. And we're living in a post-Austin world. We're living in a post-nil world. We're living in a world where the NCAA, through the failed leadership of Mark Emmert, didn't get what it wanted in its campaign for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. And that was run both through Congress, primarily the Senate, and then also in federal courts. All those things that the NCAA wanted didn't pan out. And the NCAA has never been in a position of weakness like it is in right now. It doesn't know what to do. It's like a fish flopping around in the boat after it's been pulled in and can't breathe. And I think they have settled on a strategy of elevating Bob Gates and putting Mark Emmert in the NCAA Witness Protection Program. And then I think you're going to see Gates coming back and being the face of the NCAA in their next round of a power grab in the United States Senate. And that's where this is headed. And I've, I've talked about that at, at length. But what is so, so important to understand is that while the NCAA is in this position of weakness and it is trying to remake itself for public consumption and for credibility in the Senate, it has not changed its fundamental belief system or its arrogant approach. It's my way or the highway. It's the NCAA or nothing. It's either NCAA or chaos. It's the NCAA or the end of college sports. And the reason that that hasn't changed is because we have the very same people who screwed this thing up sitting in leadership positions. And the Constitutional Committee that Bob Gates put together is a perfect example of that. And I'm going to get into that in some detail. But it really is crucial to understand the way that these people think, the way they really see the world. And what the NCAA has done 
and is doing to NC State is a window into how the NCAA actually thinks and how it actually operates behind the scenes. In that last episode, The World According to Carol Cartwright was a good example of that. So I really want to keep that uh, framework for the rest of my discussion about the NC State case. And it's particularly important to keep that framework in mind as we analyze Carol Cartwright's February 14th, 2020 referral letter. Because while the NCAA's public face may be changing, its attitude, its belief system, hasn't changed. And that is on full display in this NC State case. So we're going to get right to this letter. So I want to start with just the basic description of what this thing looks like physically, what it looks like. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I obtained this on a website called Scribed. It's a paid service. And you get access to documents that have been obtained through public records requests. And then they're published mostly by the people who get them. You have a lot of journalists putting stuff on there. But you have access to a body of material that's not easily accessible. And this is certainly not a document that the NCAA wants in the public record. And when Carol Cartwright drafted this letter, it's my belief that she didn't really think it was ever going to be put out into the public domain or would be the subject of uh, scrutiny outside of the NCAA's enforcement and infractions process through which it has complete control and prevents people who are part of that from speaking publicly, (laughs) unless it's the NCAA. (laughs) We're going to talk about that in this letter because the NCAA goes out and manipulates public opinion through wildly inappropriate public statements about these cases and then brings the hammer down on NC State for merely pointing out that the NCAA may be on the wrong track in its interpretation of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball. It's really a stunning hypocrisy, but that's the hypocrisy that defines the NCAA. And in their arrogant belief system, this notion that they have this divinely anointed seat at the table of the regulation of college sports, they think they're doing God's work. They have this like religiosity, this evangelistic quality to the way that they swing their regulatory hammer. And they believe that every blow is a blow for the righteousness of amateurism, the collegiate model and the student athlete. And that is part of the problem. And when I started writing in my blog three years ago, I have an about page and I talk a little bit about my background and uh, why I'm doing this. And I said then there are all these external forces that are applying pressure on the NCAA and the Power Five and the big-time college sports marketplace to, to drag it into the 21st century and have it operate under fundamental American principles of fairness and justice and equality of opportunity. And that's particularly true in the context of the exploitation of the black labor pool in football and men's basketball. But I also said, and I think this is really where I, I come down again and again, nothing is going to change unless Americans, the consumers, the people who give life to college sports, they they have to view their relationship to the product in a different way. And they have to understand that the narratives that they have been sold are false narratives that have a business purpose. They have nothing to do with principles or values or integrity or any of these ideals that the NCAA and the Power Five and their partners in the media and then these big time sports entertainment oligarchies have spun. Those principles are commodities to the NCAA and they are nothing more than a pathway to the next dollar. So this is really about changing hearts and minds. And 
that is a challenge given the how successful the NCAA's been at propagandizing the values upon which this business model is based. One of the challenges in this exercise of analyzing the NCAA's business model and the hypocrisy built into it and the injustice built into it is that those narratives have such power at the normative level that it's very difficult to fight against. And even on the backside of this unanimous Supreme Court decision, which at least was a symbolic blow to that narrative, you still see people coming back to some of the fundamental assumptions about big-time college sports and amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model and the integrity, all this stuff. Again, in my judgment, nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to change until we change the way we think. So my goal in this podcast and in the blog before it was really dedicated to changing hearts and minds. And an important part of that is understanding how these people think, why they think the way they think, and how they protect their narratives in the public square. And the NCAA has been brilliant at that. The NCAA has very little responsibilities and substantial authorities, contrary to Bob Gates' propaganda. And they operate like a shell company. They take in the March Madness money, and then they spread it around to make people happy. But they have no real responsibilities. And part of this exercise is to expose the fundamental shallowness and hollowness of the NCAA. And aside from raking in the March Madness money and preserving the NCAA bureaucracy through a long-term contract that extends now into 2032, the NCAA has had really only two other purposes. One is to defend and enforce the overarching compensation limits, amateurism-based compensation limits, which fix the cost of labor for revenue-producing athletes, football and men's basketball players at the cost of an athletics scholarship. They've been doing that since 1956, and they had been largely successful until the wave of antitrust suits filed by athletes beginning in 2006 and then playing out through this Austin Supreme Court decision. They've been very successful at defending that wage-fixing agreement. And then the other thing that they do, and this is really all they have left right now after the Austin decision, that is to act as a propagandist, an aggressive propagandist for the false principles that were sold to Americans to defend the compensation limit. So the NCAA is really in a tough spot right now. And that's why I think they are just struggling to find their footing in a world where really all they have left is their propaganda and their March Madness money. And they are going to hold on to those two things as if their very existence depended upon it. And it does. Their very existence is at issue here. And they are pulling out all the plugs and they're going back to their power bases and all their propagandists out in the world, their foot soldiers, their propaganda foot soldiers out in the media and the sports commentariat. And when you compare this Cartwright referral letter with where the NCAA sits now, you just look back and you say, no wonder this happened. Because what you hear from Carol Cartwright in this referral letter is the same garbage that you hear from Mark Emmert when he goes and testifies in front of Congress or issues some ridiculous proclamation or jumps on his uh, soapbox to proclaim the uh, integrity of college sports and to stroke his ego. And that's what a lot of this has been about. You say leadership doesn't matter at that level because it's such a big organization. Leadership does matter. 
and leadership matters in the NCAA. And Mark Emmert's tenure as NCAA president has been textbook case study in failed leadership and how failed leadership at the top can affect even the most powerful institutions like the NCAA. And that arrogance that has driven him to run in front of cameras and to make bold proclamations and to assert authorities that he doesn't have like he did in the Penn State case, like he did with name, image, and likeness when he was issuing proclamations that if the universities didn't take control of name, image, and likeness. He was going to step in personally. He and his staff were going to step in to, to save the day. And it was a train wreck. It was an absolute train wreck. And the, the media covered for Emmert on that. So in terms of changing the narrative, when you see Mark Emmert crashing and burning as he did on nil, and then the ease with which he pivoted from having created the problem in the first place to pretending that he was the savior of that problem. It was almost like administrative Munchausen's by proxy. He creates this turmoil and then he comes in to try to save the sports world from it. And then he proclaims himself a messiah. And the sports media played into that narrative. And now the NCAA has gotten Mark Emmert locked in a closet and the Board of Governors does just uh, months after they unanimously voted to extend his contract. I mean, again, you just can't make this stuff up. But that is the world that the NCAA is living in now. And to understand how they got from there to here, you have to understand how the Mark Emmerts of the world think and how the Carol Cartwrights of the world think. And there has been a symbiotic relationship between the NCAA and the Knight Commission that Cartwright chaired from 2017 to the very end of 2020, this crucial time in the NCAA enforcement and infractions case against NC State. And Mark Emmert and Carol Cartwright are two peas in a pod, and they come from the same culture. They are university presidents, or former university presidents. And as I discussed in some detail in the last episode, the Knight Commission's magic bullet to rein in the corruption in college sports and its corrupting influence on higher education was presidential leadership and control. And there's been a fundamental shift in how the academy has approached big-time college sports since Miles Brand became the head of the NCAA in 2001, and he was a former university president at the University of Indiana. And all of a sudden, all the criticism that the academic crowd had been throwing at the NCAA and the NCAA national office when it was being run by people like Walter Byers and then by leaders who came out of the athletics director's model, all that criticism just disappeared. And since Miles Brand's uh, tenure in, t in 2001, so we're now 20 years into it with uh, Brand and then Emmert, who was also a former university president, you've had the academic community just sitting idly by when they're supposed to be in charge of this. And it was at their insistence that they be in charge. And this, the college sports regulatory world has just crumbled under their leadership. And you have to understand the way they think to understand what's going to happen next. And that brings us to this Cartwright referral letter. And so let's talk real quick about the context and the timing. So we have this new legislative scheme, really an entirely new bureaucracy that was put together for this independent accountability resolution process recommended by the Commission on College Basketball for these very types of cases. There's no question about that, that all these basketball-related cases should have been run through that process. And I contend from the very beginning, the NCAA has interpreted the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations in a way that is self-serving. And the way they implemented the legislation for this independent process, 
it essentially neuters the entire track, which was supposed to be the sole domain of the complex case unit, which is an entirely new subset of NCAA bureaucracy that was created just for this process. And their job was to conduct investigations. And the NCAA hired three big time national firms that specialize in investigations and internal investigations and giving feedback to corporations on their practices and policies and, and all those things. And those three companies have done virtually nothing in the cases that have been referred because the NCAA has instead interpreted the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball and put into NCAA legislation the authority to basically cherry pick whether or when they can move a case to this independent track. There, there is this fundamental conflict between what the commission recommended, what the NCAA implemented. And on the one hand, the regulations relating to this referral to get a case into this independent process says that when the referral criteria are met, and I'm going to go through those because Cartwright uses those in her memo, but when you meet these requirements, some or all of them, it is mandatory that the case be sent to this independent process. But then in a separate provision that is in direct conflict with that mandate, it says that the Committee on Infractions, the old bad system and the enforcement staff that was really supposed to be replaced by the complex case unit to give the process some integrity in these high stakes cases in the independent track, that those decisions about whether the case was referred, when it was referred, are at the sole discretion of the NCAA old system and the Committee on Infractions. And the Committee on Infractions can refer a case at any point up to within two weeks after the final documents are submitted in the old system. And that, in this case, was the reply document. So you had the notice of allegations, which was filed on July 9th of 2019. That's the indictment. Then you had Betsy State and Gottfried filing their response to that notice of allegations on December 6th, I believe it was, of 2019. And then the NCAA came back around and filed its reply to NC State's response on February 7th of 2020. Carol Cartwright had two weeks from that date, that February 7th date, within which to refer this case to the independent panel. But the fact that she had that power, the Committee on Infractions had that power, flies in the face of the very purpose of the independent process. And then Carol Cartwright, a week after that reply on February 14th of 2020, she refers this case and the way that she describes the justification for that referral is just breathtaking in its arrogance and its hypocrisy because this put NC State in a position where it simply couldn't win. And upon transfer of that case to the independent process, North Carolina State University lost one of the most important procedural due process rights in our justice system at any level, whether it's criminal law or administrative law. And that is the right to appeal. Because under this new process, you have no right of appeal and the decision is binding. And referring this case after all the work has been done, and there actually had been a hearing scheduled for late February in the old system. <laughs> Cartwright just pulls the plug on that without any intelligent justification or explanation. And because this happened so late in the game, the new independent resolution panel is stuck with the investigative work of the enforcement and infractions team, this team that has notoriously been belligerent to the due process rights of the people subject to NCAA jurisdiction and enforcement authority. So I'm going to 
go through this referral document and really address two of the four crucial referral criteria. Because in this whole new bureaucracy for the independent accountability resolution process, one of the committees that was set up was the independent resolution referral committee. And it's their job to field these referrals and make the decision on whether or not the referral criteria have been met. And in this case, almost all of them have been met. There are seven criteria, and I'm just going to identify them real quick and then identify the two that I'm going to focus on in this episode and then the two that I'm going to focus on in the next episode. And I'm frantically thumbing through my papers here, but I need to go back to the NCAA rules. Here they are. And this is in bylaw 19. And this this is a train wreck. You know, Condoleezza Rice described the NCAA rulebook on name, image, and likeness as incomprehensible. And then the Knight Commission, ironically, Carol Cartwright's own commission, has referred to the NCAA Division I manual as akin to the IRS code. And I think some of that, the, the, there's a, a laziness component to the way that the NCAA just slaps in legislation because under this Tarkanian ruling, they're never held accountable for it because they uh, aren't required to operate by federal due process requirements. But in this new section on the independent resolution process, there are these referral criteria. I just have to say, when you look at bylaw 19 and you go through it, I, I'm very familiar with this and I have my dog-eared highlighted noted copy. And it took me a, a little while to actually find the referral factors because the way this is put together is a train wreck from a drafting standpoint and an organization standpoint. So, But here are the referral factors that the referral committee is supposed to look at. And there are seven of them. One, cases involving major policy issues that may implicate NCAA core values and commitment to the collegiate model. Two, stale or incomplete facts. Three, lack of acceptance of the core principles of self-governance, such as adversarial posturing or refusal to cooperate. Four, actual or perceived misconduct by the involved parties. Five, the scope, scale, and duration of the case and other factual complications. Six, breaches of confidentiality. And seven, increased stakes, including potential penalties or other pressures driving institutional decision-making. And Cartwright addresses six of those seven and believes those have been satisfied and that this was a no-brainer. This is a perfect textbook case that should have been in the independent resolution process. But Again, no intelligent explanation for why that didn't happen. And that could have happened as early as August of 2019 when this entire separate bureaucracy was up and running and fully operational. Yet it wasn't until February of 2020 that Cartwright makes the decision to move it over. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about the introduction and the background and how Cartwright sets the table. And then two of these criteria, the first one is the major policy issues criteria. And then the second is the lack of acceptance of core principles of self-governance, adversarial posturing. And that's so important because that's really where Cartwright gets on her high horse and the hypocrisy of the NCAA is really at its apex. And then in the next episode, I'm going to talk about two other provisions that are related that really tap into the NCAA's arrogance and how it has used the uh, court of public opinion to really prejudice this proceeding. And again, it's in direct violation of its own rules, but there's really no accountability in that regard. And that is the criteria of actual or perceived misconduct by 
But the way Cartwright couches it, she leaves out actual and it's only perceived misconduct because the misconduct she has to address is her own. And then in conjunction with that, there's a criteria on breaches of confidentiality. And again, Cartwright's discussion of that is just, you read it and you look at the facts surrounding it and the context surrounding it, you really begin to see just how deep in denial the NCAA is when it comes to its fundamental hypocrisy. One rule, one set of rules for the people that they can swing a hammer at and then an entirely different set of rules on those same issues for the NCAA. And I really believe it's that hypocrisy that really, at least in the federal courts, and I think to uh, a large extent in the Senate, really turned those decision makers off against the NCAA. And again, that reflects just really, really bad leadership. So the way Cartwright frames the issues in the introduction is really important. And I want to just read the second paragraph of this introduction. Because remember, Cartwright is making the case in this document for why this case is appropriate for this new independent process, even though it's been in the old process from the very beginning. And the, the, the quote-unquote litigation of this case is almost complete, everything except the hearing itself. So she says, as a preliminary matter, this is the first case, and she puts first in italics, in which the NCAA issued a notice of allegations stemming from the very public and high-profile basketball corruption trials in the Southern District of New York. Although those matters were part of a separate criminal process, the circumstances surrounding them prompted the NCAA to establish an independent commission on college basketball, which assessed the state of collegiate and grassroots basketball, as well as recommended transformational changes, including the development of the independent accountability resolution process. In that way, the circumstances giving rise to the Southern District of New York trials, which are central issues in this case, are the very events, and Cartwright puts very events in italics, that led to the creation of the independent process. And this case is the very type, and she puts very type in italics, of case intended to be resolved through that process. Now, I just want to make a couple of observations there because Cartwright is really full of emphasis in that paragraph. And the point she's making is that this case is precisely the kind of case that was designed to be run through this new independent process. And the way she talks about it is important because she's not talking about any facts specific to the NC State case that after its inception in the old process would have resulted in a justification for transferring it over. She's talking at the categorical level. And when she says, this case is the very type of case intended to be resolved through that process, and that process is the new independent process, she is talking about the high stakes cases. So the, the way that Cartwright frames the appropriateness of the transfer of this case in the, at the very beginning, and with these broad strokes, makes it impossible for her to justify why she didn't do it earlier. And then after those broad categorical statements, Cartwright pivots then. Actually, this is more of a U-turn than a pivot. And again, you're going to have to put on your uh, seatbelt here, your cognitive dissonance seatbelt. Because in the next paragraph, Cartwright says, the Committee on Infractions starts from the proposition that cases remain in the peer review model unless the presence and aggregation of referral factors preponderate otherwise. The Committee on Infractions has retained other cases. 
Here, however, as the case progressed and the parties vigorously advanced their position, it became apparent that this case involved unique challenges that do not align with the peer review process. And then she goes through the six criteria that she thinks are relevant. And she says, these policy issues and factors, when weighed in totality, would impede accurate and effective resolution of the case under the internal infraction structure. That's the old structure she's talking about. Thus, it is in the association's best interest to resolve this case under the independent structure. But when we look at these facts that are specific to the NC State case that she tries to use to justify the transfer of this case, most of them occurred well before she actually makes the referral in this case. It just begs the question of why she didn't do it earlier. And that is really an important question here. And then she gets into the case history and background. And I've discussed that in some detail. I did a timeline in one of my earlier episodes. I think it may have been in that episode on the Tarkanian case. But you had the indictment in, in 2018. It was a superseding indictment. And NC State's implicated in that. You have this $40,000 payment that I've talked about at length then NC State is cooperating with the NCAA under their principles of cooperation, which are a sham. But this is not a cooperative effort. This is an adversarial process, and the NCAA's refusal to acknowledge that fundamental reality is part of the problem here. But after the indictment, NC State's cooperating with the NCAA enforcement staff, and they begin their investigation. Then they issue the notice of allegation on July Ninth, and they issue it to Gottfried to NC State and then to Orlando Early. And as I've discussed in other uh, episodes, Orlando Early didn't respond at all. And that was consequential because under these new powers imported from the Commission on College Basketball into the NCAA enforcement and infractions process in 2018, a year before the, uh, the infrastructure for this new independent track was up and running. But in 2018, they put in the importation rule that allows them to borrow facts from other tribunals. Then they put in these non-cooperation principles that basically allow, at least in the NCAA's interpretation, to take early silence as essentially an admission that everything that they allege actually occurred. And it, it's a shortcut of violation of any rational conceptualization of due process. And then Cartwright starts talking about some of these procedural machinations that I referenced in prior episodes. The 60-day stay in September where she was stepping back and looking at the chessboard after the NCAA lost its motion in the criminal case to access all the dirt in that case that had been placed under seal because it was so prejudicial, unreliable, and uncorroborated. But the NCAA wanted that information because they were going to use it in this case and others arising from the basketball-related scandals. So that order was issued on September 4th of 2019 and on September 20th. 26 of 2019, Cartwright issues a stay of all these basketball-related proceedings and steps back and analyzes the chessboard and then comes back. And I think they've decided that they're going to focus on NC State. It's not entirely clear why. I have some thoughts on that that I'll get into at some point. But then you had the NC State and Gottfried filing their response on December 6th. And then another important thing happens because the NCAA says that NC State and Gottfried engaged in adversarial posturing. And their adversarial posturing as to NC State really revolves around NC State merely pointing out that they disagree with the NCAA over the interpretation of one of these brand new rules that the NCAA is using for the first time. As to Gottfried, apparently he made some public comments and there was a ESPN article on December 12, 2019, and they cite to that. But remember, December 12th of 2019 was well before the NCAA through Cartwright tries to move this case over. And then on February 7th, the NCAA filed its response. And, and then Cartwright says this, and this is important. 
As the Committee on Infractions began looking for spring dates to hear the case, the actual hearing, I reviewed the procedural documents. These documents were full of adversarial positions, fulsome attacks on the process, express references to potential violations and inferences of a potential allegation not contained in the notice of allegation and factual complexities. So what Cartwright wants us to believe is that she basically knew nothing about the specifics of this case until she started looking for appropriate dates for the actual hearing. And then she reviewed the quote-unquote procedural documents. There's three main documents. There's no way in hell that Carol Cartwright didn't know what was in those documents. That portrayal just doesn't pass the blush test. But she's trying to set up a time frame here that justifies why she waited so long. And it's like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I look at these documents. It's in February. Wow. There are all these attacks. And the irony, one of the ironies in the tone of this letter is that while Cartwright is pointing the finger at NC State and Gottfried for quote unquote adversarial posturing, the language in this memo is full of adversarial posturing. The NCAA's entire enforcement and infractions process is based on adversarial posturing and public preening. And that really was at its zenith in the Penn State case when Mark Emmert completely did an end run around the infractions and enforcement process and unilaterally declared by imperial edict as NCAA president that he was going to bring the hammer down on Penn State. And that, that came to bite him in the butt. But you have that same kind of arrogance on display here and for the same purpose. And that is really primarily, maybe even solely, to convince the public and the outside world that the NCAA is on the job and they are keeping the streets clean. So their adversarial posturing is part of the very character of the enforcement and infractions process. They engage in it liberally, and they did so in this case. Fulsome attacks. And there's a, a lot of loaded language like this throughout this document that really, you have to have a sense of humor here in some ways, because one of the hallmarks of presidential leadership and Mark Emmert's leadership and Miles Brand and Carol Cartwright, college professor Emma Rita, is language like this that you wonder how long they pondered that before they started with started stroking the keyboard. But anyway, we go to the application of referral factors, and we're going to look at two of these. We're going to start with the major policy issues. And this is where the NCAA and Carol Cartwright have the opportunity to get on their high horse, major policy issues. This is going to invoke NCAA values. And remember that all of the enforcement and infractions work. The existence of that entire bureaucracy is predicated upon the validity and legitimacy of the principles of amateurism, the student-athlete, and the collegiate model. And when Carol Cartwright's writing this, not only are those principles in place, but the NCAA is engaging in this campaign in federal courts, in Congress, and in state legislatures to impose those principles and make them federal law. <laughs> that, that's it. They are federalizing NCAA compensation limits and uh, protecting themselves from any challenge to those compensation limits. That's what the campaign for the Iron Throne was all about. So they're speaking the language in February of 2020 of these uh, principles that now don't seem to have as much weight as they once did. And so she says, let's see, they, these principles include 
the commitment to amateurism, that's number one, amateurism. Number two, fair competition. Number three, integrity and sportsmanship. And number four, responsible recruiting standards. And then she talks about the fact that these standards are also mentioned in the NCAA Constitution. And remember, the repository for all these high-minded values is the Article 2, and that is principles for the conduct of intercollegiate sports. So we have that as context. And then she says this, and, and, and again, one of the concerns here, and this NC State raised this, but again, they're in a tough spot because they have to both appease the NCAA and the independent resolution panel because they have such authority and power over the member institutions. And at the same time, make arguments that they need to make and preserve the record. So they have a really challenging job here, given those dynamics. But one of the concerns that they raise, and it's a legitimate concern, is that in this referral memo and in the way that Carol Cartwright is handled these cases from the very beginning. And I think that flows from her obvious conflicts of interest that I addressed in the last episode. But it's clear that the NCAA has prejudged this case. And this next sentence in that major policy issues section, I think is really a testament to that. So what she says is, on the face of the allegations, the conduct at issue in this case appears to run afoul of responsible recruiting by injecting monetary influence and pressure into a prospect's decision-making process. Under the NCAA collegiate model, enrollment decisions traditionally balance educational, athletic, and geographic considerations. Monetary in inducements in exchange for enrollment are expressly prohibited and are antithetical to the collegiate model. And so I, I guess this just is another example of how the moral superiority that's infused in the NCAA decision-making process and the people that swirl around it, it directs the way that they handle issues like this. And so Cartwright is saying, based on the face of the allegations, she's not saying based on the evidence or what the evidence might show or the evidence could be construed to suggest. She's saying that looking at only the allegations, and those are allegations put together by the NCAA and its enforcement staff. And she's not talking about NC State's response here. She's not talking about what the independent resolution panel might be able to do if they came in and did new investigative work, independent of the Committee on Infractions. She's talking about self-serving allegations from the NCAA enforcement staff that are built around the cherry-picked, quote-unquote, evidence from the criminal case that is wildly inappropriate for inclusion or consideration in the enforcement and infractions case. And I've talked at length about that. So that's how they frame the issues. The other thing I would just say, and sometimes this gets lost because in the way that I think about these things, I'm so deep into it. I just assume this, but most people don't assume this, and I don't think they fully understand that in the context of these inducements, these monetary inducements, the athletics scholarship is an inducement. It is outright pay for play because the quid pro quo in that arrangement, in that contract, is the athletes, these high level athletes in the revenue producing sports, football and men's basketball, are providing their labor, their talent, their skill, and their market value to the university. In exchange for that and that alone, the university is paying tuition, books, board, and the cost of attendance stipend. And that is the arrangement. That is the contract. And the uh, Northwestern Labor Relations Board looked at that objectively in looking at the uh, nature of the relationship between the 
athletes, the revenue-producing athletes, and the universities. And Justice Alito, in his questions at oral argument on March 31st of uh, 2021 in the Austin case, he explicitly put that on the table. And in the way that the U.S. Supreme Court analyzed the Austin case in its decision, they presumed that the payment of tuition and, and books and board through the athletic scholarship was indeed a form of pay for play. You can't deny that. So this whole preening about the sanctity of the, the recruiting environment and these monetary inducements can only exist in the fantasy world where the NCAA ignores the fact that they're already paying these guys for their athletic labor and talent. So then we go into the lack of acceptance of core principles of self-governance, adversarial posturing. And this is where we're going to get into this importation rule that's so important. And this is one of the devices that the Commission on College Basketball suggested. And it did so in a brief paragraph. The NCAA has taken that discussion, which was specifically addressed to the new independent resolution panel, not the old system, and all of the commission's recommendations, including its suggestion of the appropriateness of using facts from facts established from other tribunals, came under the heading of the independent resolution process. It really had nothing to do with the old process and in fact was designed to be a counterweight to that process in these high stakes cases. So the way the NCAA brought these in was just fundamentally inconsistent with the Commission on College Basketball and I think it was just dishonest, but they extend the importation of facts in ways that were not consistent with the language that the Commission on College Basketball used. And the way that they have constructed and interpreted this provision, they can basically cherry pick anything from any external body that they choose. And it doesn't matter whether it is reliable or whether it actually is a fact that has been credibly established. They are bringing in innuendo, circumstance, and observations by participants in those other tribunals that aren't evidence and are explicitly described as not trustworthy in that process because they aren't evidence. That's how the NCAA is rolling on this. And it is a departure, not only from what the Commission on College Basketball recommended, but from any reasonable construction of the proper use of facts in one proceeding to use in another, where there are real consequences. And in this enforcement and infractions uh, process, there are real consequences. So let me just read to you how Cartwright talks about this. She says... The second and perhaps most significant factor supporting referral involves NC states and Gottfried's lack of acceptance of the core principles of self-governance and the membership's infractions process through adversarial posturing that goes beyond simple disagreement and advocacy. First, NC State and Gottfried attack the membership's recently approved importation bylaw, which serves as the vehicle for the factual information supporting the critical allegation in this case. They put in parens the $40,000 payment. Additionally, NC State challenges the remaining allegations by claiming that they are either, one, barred by the statute of limitations, two, should have been alleged as level three, or three, could have been done permissibly implying any violation is insignificant. Then Cartwright says, despite a high degree of agreement of many of the pertinent facts, this case involves virtually no agreement on whether violations occurred. With regard to the attacks on the use of importation, uh, the core of the party's adversarial posturing 
involves attempts to muddy the relatively straightforward importation bylaw. This is a valuable bylaw recently approved by the NCAA membership as a tool for the infractions process. And then they cite the importation provision. And I'm just going to read this to you, and then you can decide on your own whether this is straightforward and whether this is a clear-cut description of the NCAA's authority to wholesale import facts from other proceedings. So this is bylaw 19.7.8.3.1, titled Importation of Facts, and it reads... Facts established by a decision or judgment of a court, agency, accrediting body, or other administrative tribunal of competent jurisdiction, which is not under appeal, or by the commission or similar review of comparable independence, authorized by a member institution or the institution's university systems board of trustees, and regardless of whether the facts are accepted by the institution or the institution's university systems board of trustees, may be accepted as true in the infractions process in concluding whether an institution or individual participating in the previous matter violated NCAA legislation. Evidence submitted and positions taken in such a matter may be considered in the infractions process. And Cartwright puts that last sentence in italics now. From that language, can you just describe in layman's terms what the NCAA could appropriately bring in from another tribunal or body and what it cannot? And the answer is no, you can't. In part, because this language purposely drafted, I think, to allow the NCAA to do whatever the hell it wants to do. And remember, the NCAA is the sole arbiter of what this language means. They drafted it, they implemented it, they put it into legislation, and now in the enforcement and infractions process, they are the only body that can interpret it. And the way that they think about the world, and this is a product of this uh, Tarkanian case where there's no external review or any check on their ability to kind of make this up as they go along or interpret it any way they want to, the assumption is that nobody can challenge their interpretation. And that goes right back to the arrogance that is really the foundation of their campaign for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. And the NCAA, only the NCAA gets to make these decisions. And that arrogance is on full display in this portrayal of the importation of facts provision and Cartwright's acknowledgement at the very beginning of this document that these tools are being used for the very first time, very first italics, and that this is a case of first impression. Under those circumstances, you would expect the person who is subject to the application of this brand new and very powerful tool to have some concerns about how it's being applied. And in the NCAA's construction of reality, the fact that the mere fact that NC State had a disagreement over what that language meant, whether it is consistent with what the Commission on College Basketball recommended, and whether its application is fair and just, that alone constitutes adversarial posturing. <laughs> and in characterizing it, you have Carol Cartwright using words that could not be described as anything but adversarial posturing. So she describes the mere disagreement on that provision as a quote-unquote attack. And she speaks with a high-minded certitude that flies in the face of the reality that this is a brand new provision being applied for the first time. And so after she quotes that language, she says this, 
acknowledging that this is one of the first cases involving the membership's newly adopted bylaw. Both NC State and Gottfried attempt to limit the bylaw to the narrowest possible application, far from the express language and codified intent and rationale. <laughs> that language is so badly constructed that it's almost impossible to tell what the codified intent and rationale is, but that doesn't matter because the NCAA believes that it and it alone gets to decide what that language meant and how it's going to be interpreted and apply. And again, that is just an affront to any reasonable understanding of due process. And she's talking about this in really confrontational, argumentative terms. This is an argumentative document. It reads like a legal brief. And so when she says that NC State and Gottfried attempt to limit the bylaw to the narrowest possible application, far from the express line, that is argumentative and it is confrontational and it is adversarial. The very description of NC State and Gottfried's positions here is in itself adversarial. So it's the NCAA and Carol Cartwright who are engaging in adversarial posturing here, not NC State. NC State is simply pointing out a legitimate disagreement over the purpose, meaning, and application and interpretation of this language that's being used for the first time. That's all. That's all. And then Cartwright talks about this last sentence because what NC State was saying is that the way that the NCAA was construing this language of importation, it was conflating facts established by a decision or judgment, which implies some relevance and some trustworthiness that, that these facts had been presented and adjudged to be relevant, material, credible. And they are conflating that with this last sentence that talks about evidence submitted and positions taken. That, that means nothing. It means whatever the NCAA wants it to mean. And the NCAA is just all over the map on that. I think NC State's interpretation of how they're using that importation provision is accurate because when you look at the evidence that was actually brought in, and I talked about that when I talked about the NCAA's reply, this February 7th reply, almost all that evidence really wasn't evidence at all. There were positions taken and innuendo and statements from opening argument and closing argument and sentencing memoranda and the indictment, the allegations, not the evidence, but the allegations. And so they are using shortcuts here that could not have been intended by the Commission on College Basketball and certainly don't comport with any reasonable understanding of due process. But then they try to separate that last sentence in response to Gottfried's observation. And this is a fair observation that the case is on appeal. And by the very language, it's language that isn't straightforward, but this is among the most straightforward components of that provision. And that is that if a case is under appeal, those facts are really not established because the decision or judgment that they flow from is on appeal and is being challenged. And that's true with this case. The case that they drew these facts from is on appeal and it's in the United States Supreme Court right now. Gottfried simply pointed that out and that apparently didn't sit well with the NCAA. And so what Cartwright's trying to say here is that they can still use evidence submitted and positions taken, even if the case is on appeal. And that's an interesting position for Cartwright to take. And this is starting to get really hair splitting and, and, and complicated, but 
their arguments and interpretations are internally inconsistent. And then they basically say, we can bring in whatever the hell we want to bring it. And you can't challenge it because only we can decide what's relevant. And then the Committee on Infractions or maybe the independent panel can decide whether we were right. The, the problems with that are, are so obvious. I'm not even going to say them again. And then let's see. She also points out that neither NC State nor Gottfried mentioned the sentencing documents that the NCAA is relying upon. But in talking about their failure to address the sentencing documents, which they think are smoking guns, and they're not, they're self-serving. <laughs> Quite frankly, in his sentencing, while the federal government has their boot on Gaznola's throat, and Gaznola, this shady actor, this bad actor that the NCAA is now holding up as a, a righteous uh, foot soldier in the quest for integrity in college sports. I mean, again, the irony is just uh, breathtaking there. But in the sentencing memo, in order to avoid jail time, which Gasnola did, Gasnola would have said he was responsible for global warming. You know, those documents aren't worth the paper they're written on, even if they are technically admissible. And the NCAA's lawyers, they know that. But in trying to hold their failure to address those issues against them, against NC State and Godfrey, the NCAA talks about where that evidence came from. And again, you just have to wonder whether she even read the final version of this, <laughs> because this just looks so bad. That sentencing document wasn't put into the record until just days before NC State was required to file its response in December of 2019. So NC State and Gottfried really didn't have an opportunity to analyze that, to understand how the NCAA was trying to use it, and then to respond to it. And then they spring this and put it into the record. And Cartwright essentially admits that. She says the enforcement staff was right to ensure those documents were in the record, although less than ideal in terms of timing. But that doesn't matter. The fact that they snuck this in, Cartwright says, okay, well, less than ideal, but it's still important that they got that in. And then she uses that very document against NC State and Gottfried because they didn't adequately respond to it. And in this process, they don't have another opportunity to respond. Once they submit their response to the notice of allegations, they're done until the hearing. The NCAA gets to come in and file its reply. I dissected that reply and it was loaded with this ridiculous non-evidence that they have used to cobble together a circumstantial case against NC State and Godfrey. And again, there's no self-awareness here in Carol Cartwright's memo that this just reads like the NCAA is engaging in bad faith manipulation of the process to gain an unfair advantage in the resolution of this case. And that is an adversarial tactic. What the NCAA did by slipping in this evidence at the last minute that NC State really didn't have an opportunity to respond to, that is an adversarial tactic, and it's a cheap tactic. It's a Bush League tactic. And if you're a litigator, and I spent 15 years of my life uh, litigating cases, this is the kind of crap that when presented to a judge will drive them crazy, will send them through the roof, because this is Bush League. And in that regard, I'll just say this. If the NCAA screws NC State here and NC State turns around and sues the NCAA, this referral memo, this confidential referral memo 
is going to be the NCAA's worst nightmare. And if the case survives a motion to dismiss, and the NCAA would do that under the Tarkanian case, but if it survives, this document is going to be the one that they bring into the courtroom and go through in detail on the screen or on the easel. This document is just a nightmare for the NCAA. And they don't even know it. They can't even see it. Carol Cartwright can't see it. When I read this, I'm just thinking, who in the hell allowed this thing to go out? Even if they thought it was confidential, they knew that there was some theoretical possibility that this action could be challenged, in part because it does address issues of substantial issues of first impression. But I'm just thinking, if I'm a lawyer for the NCAA, in-house or outside lawyer, this ain't going out. I mean, or uh, under my objection, <laughs> I'm sending a CYA email to say, no, this is out of control on so many levels. And then I'll just close this episode out with this last thing that Cartwright discusses under this adversarial posturing provision. She talks about, well, let me just read it to you. She says, Although the membership's adjudicative process does not require institutions and involved individuals to agree with all of the enforcement staff's allegations, the membership built its peer review process on some level of cooperation, collaboration, and acceptance of responsibility and accountability when violations occurred. It is not an adversarial process. And then Cartwright says, here, there is effectively no agreement combined with attacks on the process. That's not adversarial. The Committee on Infractions can handle contentious issues. Uh, Apparently not. It has a glass chin. And then she says, but cases involving parties who challenge nearly all allegations are best resolved through the independent process, a process that anticipates adversarial posturing. This is not a cooperative process. And in this process, NC State did cooperate until the NCAA decided to use that cooperation against them and launch this crusade built on non-evidence and circumstantial evidence. And because cooperation in the NCAA's construction of reality means that an institution or individual that is defending an enforcement actions has to simply roll over and take whatever the NCAA dishes out, anybody who challenges any aspect of the NCAA's exercise of its authorities is a bad actor. This is another variation on the bad actor mentality. And if you don't agree with the NCAA, if you don't heal to its every command. And if you stray one iota from their my way or the highway approach to enforcement and infractions, then you're a bad actor. You are not a member in good standing. That is the message here. And that is the message that the NCAA subtly conveys in the public arena, sometimes not so subtly. But this notion that this is not an adversarial process is just so deep in institutional denial, that it's really troubling. And this is where the NCAA is coming from. This is what they really believe. And that's what's so important about this referral memo. This is how the NCAA actually sees the world. And this is how they interact with the people who are subject to its jurisdiction and its control. And there's no room for disagreement. They have a totalitarian approach to their business model, to their claimed values, to their compensation limits, and to rules violations. It is totalitarian. It, it, it is all or nothing. And this referral memo is perfect evidence of that because NC State absolutely has a right and an obligation, a duty to challenge what the NCAA is doing here because it is so outrageous on its face. 
And if you think it can't get worse than what I've just described, you're in for a treat. Because in the next episode, I'm going to talk about these other two factors that are important. And those relate to the quote-unquote perceived misconduct of the parties and then the uh, breaches of confidentiality. So we'll take a look at those. And again, when, when we go through those, I think you're just going to be shaking your head. So with that, I will close this episode out. And as always, I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you along. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.